Welcome back, everyone, to Uninvested, the podcast that gives you everything you need to know, even if you feel like you know nothing. As always, my name is Crockett Calloway. I'm Silas Seth. And in today's episode, we are very lucky and deeply excited to talk to Jacob Nathan, the co-founder and CEO of Epoch Biodesign. Now, Sal, all too often we hear about the archetypal narrative of the student founder, right? The young high school or college dropout turned hustler who's building the next billion dollar unicorn. But it's also easy to forget that those people aren't just myths. You know, they actually exist. Jacob Nathan is one of those people founding Epoch Biodesign at just 18 years old and sipping what most consider the most conventional life path, college. Today, at just 22 years old, Jacob has raised over $16 million for his company with investors like Chris Saka. He's had a mission to transform the future of sustainable plastic and circular energy. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Great to be here. So Jacob, for our first question, we really want to talk about how you kind of started Epoch Biogen. Like where did this fascination for biology, creating enzymes, I know like starting at a young age, not many people are interested in those paths. What really kind of got you going towards it? A bit of a long, slightly circuitous journey. Um, I mean, I got my kind of start maybe in sustainability at quite a young age. I watched a lot of David Attenborough growing up, spent a lot of time in nature, kind of built up through like love and appreciation for the world around us. Probably had my epiphany moment, maybe age 13, 14. Um, I, I think we all do at some point. M mine was quite early where I realized okay, the world is on fire and we should probably do more to try and put that fire out. And so that turned into this feeling of, okay, like, what can I do to, to try and put us onto a slightly different path? Um, going through school, that meant doing things like leading the Sustainability Council. Uh, I led a bunch of classmates to uh, skip class and uh, protest outside the Houses of Parliament for, for climate action back when school strikes were happening. And um, quickly became a little bit disenfranchised with uh, kind of some of the activism uh, uh, that, that was going on. And I thought maybe there was like a a better, more scalable way to to address um, our problem of kind of environmental destruction and, and, and climate change, uh, maybe through kind of the lens of, of building a business and, and sort of scaling something different. So um, that kind of realization coincided with an opportunity I had during my final year of school, uh, during my senior year, um, where I was given the chance to take a research class and kind of like an independent study. I'd done my biology, done my chemistry. Uh, that was kind of what I was into in high school and 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 had the chance to kind of take that one step further and, and kind of build a project uh, that I could I could do myself. And so um, given my kind of uh, background in sustainability and then the fact that I'd done a few beach cleanups in my summers, um, I knew I wanted to do something in sustainability and then kind of more specifically in plastics. Um, gave a lot of thought as to, you know, why we have this, uh, this problem of plastic waste, right? Like why we can't uh, deal with all the stuff we're generating. And realized there are kind of two sides to this equation. So one is we just make way too much of the stuff, uh, but the other is actually we don't know what to do with it once we're done using it. And, you know, we could stop making plastics tomorrow, but there are still 10 billion tons of this material that are just kind of sitting around taking up space. So we should probably find something to do with it. So I thought it would be good if you could take all this waste plastic and you could turn it into chemicals that had industrial uses, offtake markets, uh, but really most importantly, value, right? That way you could solve... Uh, one of the fundamental problems with recycling, which is that it's not really profitable to do it. So, so kind of unsurprisingly, nobody wants to do it, right? And um, also excitingly, if you're making new chemicals and materials from waste plastic, it means you're not making uh, those chemicals and materials from newly extracted fossil carbon, right? So circular economy, not that kind of new of a realization, uh, but really kind of a, a powerful pathway to kind of reimagining the way that we're manufacturing things. 
So I knew from my biology background in school that an enzyme, uh, a little biological machine, uh, was the most efficient way to do a chemical reaction, right? Hence why we exist today. We, we are powered by enzymes. Life around us is powered by enzymes. And so that was my research project to, to try and find a plastic eating enzyme. And I kind of got started by uh, digging into the literature, uh, kind of what, what scientists had done before. I uh, had my own thoughts, went out into nature, took some samples, brought them back to the lab and, and got some really early and, and interesting results uh, where I was able to find uh, these microbes that were breaking down plastic waste uh, in order to kind of grow and, and, and replicate. It was at that moment when I remembered, okay, I don't have my PhD. Let me find someone a lot smarter than me to, to help me take that forward. Um, so I went online and, and I tried to find the best person in the country to do that. Uh, that turned out to be somebody called uh, Douglas Kelp. Um, who's kind of a, he's a professor in the UK and this, this world leader in a field called um, systems and synthetic biology, right? So understanding how all the different components of biology work together to create a living organism, uh, but then using a method of uh, something called synthetic biology uh, to design and optimize those components in order to build something different. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about what that was like just kind of breaking out to this stranger, Doug, like you're writing just a random email to him. In your words, he's he's world renowned. He's he's done a lot. Like, why is he responding to you? What did that look like from your perspective? Yeah, he was actually. Uh, it, it's a bit of a crazy story, but um, my my great uncle uh, is a computer scientist, and uh, back in the '90s, uh, he developed kind of an early machine learning algorithm, uh, which which kind of pales in comparison to to, to what we interact with today, but. I uh, was kind of pretty cutting edge at the time. And Doug, uh, my co-founder, uh, was always really interested in how you could use uh, machine intelligence to kind of begin to decrypt and better understand the complexities of biology and chemistry. And like, you know, how, how can we find like different paradigms for understanding these complex systems? And so uh, Doug found a piece of work that my, my great uncle uh, had been working on. Um, and he, uh, they worked together. Uh, they sort of did a little bit of work and then, uh, they, they kind of lost, uh, when working together so closely, but stayed in touch over the, the following years. And, uh, when I was telling my great uncle about, uh, the work I was doing at school and, uh, you know, potentially some interesting results, he goes, oh, you should, uh, you should reach out to Doug. Here's his email. Uh, so I reached out and I said, look, I'm, uh, I'm the great nephew of, uh, of Mike, uh, and, uh, Here's what I'm working on. And, and, you know, I'd really just appreciate your thoughts, right? Like, can you suggest uh, some things that I should do differently or, or maybe what kind of the next steps look like? Uh, do you know anyone I can, I can get in touch with? And uh, I remember writing quite, quite a long email, uh, maybe like 11 PM on like a, like a Monday night or something. And um, about three minutes later, I got a response from Doug uh, basically saying like, this is incredibly exciting. I'd love to help you, uh, you know, scientifically. And, you know, if, basically, if you like me commercially as well, um, you know, don't tell anyone about this. This is very, very cool. And, and, and you can imagine like, you know, senior year of high school, senior writers kicking in. Um, and, you know, I was just like struggling to get through some physics homework. And, and I went to, to bed sort of, you know, wide, wide awake, kind of amped, really excited about, you know, the fact that some, someone very legitimate had taken an interest in what I was doing, like really, really validating. And I remember sort of sitting at 8 a.m. in uh, English the next day reading Shakespeare and just thinking, yeah, no, I don't want to, I don't want to be doing this. I want to uh, go figure out how biology works. What you discovered, is it considered very novel? Or because you said he's very interested, has he never seen anything like this before? Or was this something he was very familiar with and you maybe found like a new tweak to it? So, so I had discovered uh, a microbe in nature 
that was producing an enzyme that was breaking down plastic. And I didn't know what microbe it was. I didn't know what enzyme it was. Um, but we could we could see that um, it was feeding on plastic because it's only carbon source. And so it kind of must have been breaking it down, right? Um, and this is, uh, you, you know, since then, a lot of different things have been discovered in nature. But but at the time, it was it was pretty interesting, right, that nature had developed a means to break down a material that really hasn't been around for that long. Um, and so, you know, Doug was quite excited by the possibility of, okay, well, maybe this enzyme or some uh, optimized version of that enzyme could then work at scale. And, and that would be sort of a fundamentally new way to break down uh, all the different types of plastics uh, that, that, that today sort of are not recyclable. Um, since then, we've, we've progressed the, tech, the underlying technology pretty dramatically. And uh, we now work on, on different classes of enzymes for different types of materials um, using uh, fundamentally different techniques. But I think at the time, it was that early sort of, wow, okay, you know, this is a starting point uh, for us to optimize from. And so at this point, you're clearly realizing Shakespeare is not what you want to do. And you're more passionate in this idea. Maybe you're realizing college and university is what you want to do. Um, tell me about that next step, the step from kind of Here's the ideation phase. Maybe let's move to the business phase. When I met up with Doug, uh, you know, we, and we decided to kind of start this company together, uh, we applied for a bit of government funding, um, and that was actually matched by some investment from a venture capital fund here in the UK. Um, uh, funnily enough, we didn't we didn't realize that at the time. So we got this government grant, and we got a call from a VC firm one day, being like, "Hey, can we look at your data room?" And we we're like, "Who are you? I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on." And we, we did actually end up taking that money and they were incredibly helpful to us, uh, kind of figuring out the very earliest stages of, of, of trying to build a company and, um, you know, even think about putting together a pitch deck, right? That was, that was something fundamentally new. So, uh, we, we got that government money. Um, I spent the summer after my senior year working in Doug's lab at, um, at the university and, uh, uh, kind of began to convince myself that this was really interesting and, and sort of something I wanted to explore further. Um, I had a place at university, uh, it was my top choice and I really wanted to go. Um, and I went to a school that was very focused on university, right? Like that's your measure of success and and that's kind of what, what you work for, for for years and years. And so for me, there was um, at the time a, a, quite a quite a big mental barrier to break through to actually say, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna do this thing, um, which in hindsight feels a little bit crazy. Um, but, but anyways, I uh, took a first gap year to kind of see how things went and I said to myself, okay, if I can raise some money, uh, then I'll see where I'm at. Uh, so things were going really well. And then uh, we had a pandemic in the middle of that. So I kind of said, okay, let me take a second gap here because I don't know what effect this is going to have. Um, within a few months of taking that second gap year, I, I had closed our kind of first funding round, uh, which is about three and a half million dollars. And I said to myself, okay, well, look, this gives me a couple of years to see where this goes. Like if at the end of it, uh, I have nothing to show for myself. Well, at least, hey, I've got a great experience and network and some cool stories. Um, and if it goes further, then uh, it goes further. And so um, university just uh, became less and less of a point of interest. And I realized that um, experiential learning uh, could be far more catalytic, uh, albeit um, slightly more intense and sort of unstructured. So you kind of went into that gap. You're like, I want to raise money like right off the bat. Weren't considering bootstrapping. I don't know too much about the environmental biology industry, but I assume it's a pretty expensive one. So how were you really able to just go into that with all the chemistry, biology experience, and then just go into the venture industry, raise money from investors, you know, create a pitch deck? Was it all new again? Kind of like how you reached out to Doug with all cold emails, a bunch on Monday at 11 p.m.? 
you know, for a couple of our investors, yeah, I just send them a cold email. And uh, I mean, there's one example, right? We, we we reached out to a fund in the UK who's like sort of um, one of the UK's most pronounced deep tech funds. And the, the founder, uh, he started a, a company called Arm, uh, which uh, is a massive kind of uh, chip designer and a hugely valuable company. And, and uh, somebody shared his email with me uh, that I'd met an, at an event and, you know, said, okay, he's pretty open to uh, cold emails. So... I uh, sent him an email, told him what we were building, got a response 10 minutes later. He said, send me a business plan. I sent him a business plan. Uh, and then he put me in touch with another partner at the firm to kind of take the conversation forward. Um, but really, you know, this was all fundamentally new and unknown. I look back at some of my earliest pitch decks and I just, I just cringe at the fact that I ever shared that with someone. I mean, they're very, very bad. Um, and so it was very much a conversation of, you know, when I met people, right, I would ask for advice. I would say, look, this is what we're trying to build. What do you think? How, how do you think we could improve this? Um, and I, I feel like when you ask for advice, you get money. And when you ask for money, you get advice, um, especially at the earliest stages. And, um, uh, you know, people people love to be talked to. People love to be asked for advice. Um, and I think once you learn that about people, then uh, you can position position yourself quite well. Um, I, I would say as well, like one of our biggest challenges, right, was that, you, you know, um, Sahil, you know, it's 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 not cheap to do this kind of work, right? Like we can't sit in a basement drinking monster energy, just coding through the night, right? Like we need to hire PhDs and, uh, you know, there's equipment in our lab that, you know, a single piece of equipment is hundreds of thousands of pounds and you know, this stuff costs a lot of money to do. And so we had to convince investors that, you know, fundamentally this was worthwhile. Um, and a lot of that came down to the story, the storytelling aspect. And uh, it took me a few months to get the story right. And I was getting a lot of no's from investors and uh, I'd sort of sort of dial in and sort of, you know, what, why I know, what, what would change this for you? And, and we started sort of talking more about the narrative of the business. And uh, what we found was when we focused less on the science and we focused more on the, look, like this is the outcome. This is the business case. This is the story of what the world looks like if we succeed. That started to resonate a lot more. Um, and we said, okay, like, that's where we're going and you're going to take a bet that uh, myself and uh, my very very experienced scientific co-founder are going to be able to pull together the team in order to make this reality and uh, frankly a lot of early stage investing is nothing more than a bet on the founders um, the business you think you're going to build is so fundamentally different from the business that you actually end up building that um, the investment is is based on uh, do we think these these people are going to be able to kind of pull it off I'm actually curious on that story and kind of how that vision has evolved now. I think it's easy enough for you to tell Sal and I, you're kind of creating the future of, of circular energy and plastic renewal because that sounds amazing and interesting to me. But obviously to an investor, as you'd mentioned, it's often in the more concrete, where's the returns and where's the uh, where's the objective value that I can reap from this? And so what's the vision now? How's that vision developed for, for Epoch in terms of what new resources it can create? Can it make things cheaper? Can it make energy cheaper? What does that vision look like? So, I mean, when we when we first started, this was a science project, right? And I was pitching it as a science project. And uh, funnily enough, it turns out that science projects aren't actually venture backable. Uh, and I, I, I learned that pretty quickly. Um, so, so we, you know, we evolved and as the technology evolved and, and we spoke to customers and we built our team and we just kind of synthesized new ideas, you know, what we realized is that Biology is this this amazingly powerful tool, right? That is programmable, that is designable, that is eventually going to be able to uh, think of the McKinsey report that's pretty infamous at this point that suggests it'll create four trillion dollars in value in the next uh, couple of decades. 
Um, it will produce 60% of the physical inputs to our economy. I mean, these are all like big numbers that, uh, you know, tend, tend to uh, create interesting questions when it comes to um, financial return. And so, so the way we see it is that um, biology is the tool to unlock uh, value in waste that, that simply wasn't there before, right? We throw billions of tons of plastic into our environments, into ocean landfill. We burn it in incineration facilities. Like it's just lost, right? You spend all of that energy and effort taking stuff out of the ground, refining it, using it in our products, and you just waste it at the end of life. And that, you know, it's not even an environmental question. Like that's just bad business, right? So um, the question is, how can we use biology as a very kind of cheap enabling capability uh, to bring out value from this material? And that's exactly what we do. So when we think about creating uh, chemicals from plastic waste, uh, you know, chemicals that then get remanufactured into things like paints and coatings, fertilizers, cleaning products, uh, or even sort of brand new plastics, right? Um, it's not a question of sustainability. Yes, the products that we make are fundamentally better for the planet. They have a lower CO2 equivalent compared to making them from virgin material. Uh, they divert uh, material from, from landfill and incineration, uh, lower water usage, uh, a lot of kind of non-greenhouse gas toxins associated with producing a lot of these materials. We, we, we cut all of that out. Um, but it also turns out that plastic waste is very cheap. Biology is very efficient. Uh, and this is actually just a cheaper way to produce the materials and chemicals that we need to make the world go around. So I think increasingly there's a realization, uh, you know, and I, I believe it's something like, uh, take this with a pinch of salt because the number has been shifting quite a lot. But, um, you know, pre-pandemic, it was a low single digit percentage of VC dollars that were invested in green technologies and climate. Now, it, um, last stat I saw was 14%. I have heard since then it's gone above 20%. So, um, Investors are increasingly realizing that this is the first time potentially ever since the since the first industrial revolution that we have had a chance to reimagine the way that we make everything. And it turns out that that's actually a really big economic opportunity. So some of the biggest companies that are going to be built um, in the next hundred years, frankly, are in climate or in energy or in resource reuse, because actually the technologies they're building, yes, they're better for the planet, but they're just going to put the incumbents out of business. And that's that's really the story that we tell. That is the vision for us, that we're going to be making everything with biology. We're going to be reusing all of our waste, uh, but actually it's just going to be cheaper. It's going to be a better product. Um, and we we don't have to compromise on that, right? This question of sustainability and profitability. Yeah, so I completely understand your pitch. I can see your pitch to VCs. I can see the value you can extract from this, you know, the monetization. But it's one thing to pitch to a normal investor, but Obviously, as we were doing research, we noticed how you have a billionaire, Chris Sacco, backing you. And how do you really gather the confidence to pitch this idea to someone of that stature, that industry experience? And what type of confidence does it give you knowing that he's backing you fully now? So, so admittedly, I never actually got to pitch to Chris. Uh, I, I pitched to uh, another partner in the firm, uh, Clay, who's um, frankly highly capable and one of the smartest people I've met uh, in in this kind of journey. Um you know, at, at, at the time, uh, I got introduced to them and I didn't realize that it was Chris's fund. Uh, I'll be really honest. Um, and so I think probably going in for the first time, uh, I was just having back-to-back investor meetings. Someone made this introduction. I was like, okay, great. I'll, I'll, I'll take it and see where it goes. Um, and I realized afterwards who I'd spoken to. And I was like, okay, I'm glad that that went all right. Um, you know, I think... I just went through a process of, of saying my pitch so many times that it just became second nature to me. Um, it's it sort of whoever I was speaking to, I would sort of uh, use the same level of confidence. And um, I, I think by 
getting feedback, by hearing that it's a good pitch, by being it, you know, I need my grandma to be able to understand what I'm doing. Then I know that I'm pitching correctly. And um, if you're able to communicate fundamentally difficult science and technology and complex markets to people and they can understand it, um, I think that buys you a lot of credibility. Um, and for me, at least, I found that, okay, well, if people are understanding this, then I do have confidence in what I'm saying. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of imposter syndrome when it comes to doing this type of thing, right? Like at, at a certain level, like I have no right to to be doing what I'm doing, but um, I've increasingly found that, you know, I've made mistakes. I've learned from those mistakes and that goes in sort of pitching, but also kind of running and managing my business. Um, but increasingly I'm, I'm learning from those, I'm making decisions and the payoff is there. And um, I think that's really gratifying to see that um, I'm kind of evolving. And um, that being said, it's it's I think to bring ego to this role is is can be really self-destructive. Um, I think we've seen plenty of uh, stories of founders who uh, have kind of let that get the better of them, and um, you know investors and employees who have suffered as a result, uh, customers as well, and that, that's that's never a good thing. So, um, in many ways, I have a pretty blank slate, right? Like I don't have a professional experience or journey before this and and um, whilst that leaves me with a lot of uh, that's left me with a, with a lot of learning to do and i think it can be pretty advantageous when it comes to uh, actually learning the correct things and, and and doing it in a proper way i think it's interesting you bring up the ego aspect that a lot of you know plagues a lot of founders especially when it comes to something like environmental sustainability which should be i imagine one of the most selfless fields that you can work in when it when it relates to the environment and, and how it's often destructive to bring that ego in Something that also interests me there is that destructive component and kind of the threats that might be against Epoch right now. There's often threats both on the innovative level or at new challengers coming up and maybe trying to do what Epoch is, is trying to do, but also threats from tradition and the norm, you know, things like big recycling or, or, or big industry. Are there any like traditional threats that you see that is posing kind of pushback or a challenge to Epoch and the work that you're doing? Funnily enough, like we sit in a field with unstoppable tailwinds uh you know we have uh regulatory demand uh or, or pressure rather we have consumer demand we have the fact that actually raw materials can be incredibly expensive and we've seen a number of supply chain shocks in the last couple of years and suddenly people are realizing uh okay centralizing all of my production in two facilities in sort of uh, potentially geopolitically difficult regions is probably not the best thing um and so all of that has come together to say that okay, we need sustainable solutions because we're going to get taxed. We need sustainable solutions because our customers demand it. We need sustainable solutions because uh, decentralization is inherently more sustainable and we can achieve supply chain security whilst optimizing for our, our sustainability and carbon goals. Um, in terms of resistance that we found, I mean, um, we, we tend to position ourselves a lot more as an enabler than a threat. And I think that's kind of a key distinction in what we're doing. You know, we work collaboratively with large multinational chemical companies, brands that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and, and you know, the, the feedback we hear is that, look, this is a key problem for us to solve. We know we can't do it alone. And so uh, we, want to, we want to work with others. Now, I think that's a mindset shift that has happened in the last uh, couple of years, frankly. You know, we're now competing for budgets that didn't exist five years ago. And and that, that, that's a pretty fundamental change in the mindset of, of a customer. Now, um, if we think about it at an even higher level, like, yeah, of course, someone's going to lose out. Uh, the landfills and the incinerators. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's okay, too. Well, Jacob, I really want to thank you for coming on. I have, 
One more question to ask you. I think it's one that's going to be pretty fascinating from your side is, is there anything that's really grounded you or a routine that you've maintained throughout this whole crazy entrepreneurial process, whether that be a morning wordle, a meal, maybe you do yoga. Like most of our guests are always just like, I do yoga every day, but I'd like to hear if there's anything that's really keeps you grounded through this whole process. I should probably answer with yoga. That would be a lie. I think my body would thank me if I did that. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it'll be the best we can. Um, honestly, I, I'm a bit of a creature of habit. I eat the same thing every single day. I uh, have a routine. I go to the gym. Um, I find that these things are, are pretty kind of grounding. I will say I found um, quite a lot of, you, you know, look, this job is incredibly... Uh, draining at times, uh, but also incredibly rewarding at times. And, and that can be a bit of a roller coaster. Um, I think any any founder can can attest to that. And I found that uh, long bike rides um, out into the country uh, can be incredibly sort of uh, grounding and, and, and settling. I, I don't check my phone. I put it on do not disturb. I've got kind of three, four hours of kind of uninterrupted time where I'm not answering emails. And, and that can be uh, a good opportunity to sort of calm the mind, uh, clear it out from the week and uh, just kind of think about things with a, a slightly uh, fresher uh, fresher pair of eyes. I think that for a cause as noble as what Epoch is doing, you deserve those long bike rides into the country. You know, you <laughs> you, you, de you deserve that time during the roller coaster to kind of de-stress a little bit. But with, with that being said, Jacob, we've loved hearing everything about Epoch's mission and your journey from being an entrepreneur to fundraising to the future of Epoch both on your end, you know, as a personal founder, but also as a company as a whole. But as always, I'm Crockett Calloway. I'm Sahel Seth. And this has been Uninvested. Thank you. This is a personal video. Any views or opinions represented in this video are personal and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations we may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity. The views expressed are for entertainment purposes only and not to be misinterpreted as actionable investment advice.